You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so the Corinthians are obsessed with worldly power, all of the trappings that come along with it. They're looking for the put-together people. And they're evaluating their fellow Christians, in particular, their Christian leaders, through this worldly, put-together, eloquent, rhetorically able lens, right? All of the values of Corinth are the values through which the, the Christians in Corinth are evaluating one another and their leaders. And Paul, in chapter 4, begins to readjust... Or really, I would argue, he just kind of tosses out those lenses and gives them new ones. This is what he says in verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted it is the Lord who judges me what's Paul doing here he's upending right again this is what he's been doing throughout these first few chapters he is upending the worldly thinking of the Corinthian church and he is replacing it with godly thinking with Christianly thinking he's swapping those worldviews out and so he says instead of evaluating us this way here's how you should evaluate us here's how you should regard us now before we get to how that should take place. Let's take a look at how the Corinthians were evaluating Paul and Apollos. What is is Paul calling them out of? Well, verse 5 says this, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Only God can judge me gets a little scarier when we read that one. At the end of the verse, he says, Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's a few things going on here. How is it that the Corinthians were evaluating Paul? Well, first, on evidence of that sentence alone, we can see that they're judging Paul and Apollos and Cephas and all their other leaders and fellow Christians prematurely. He says, don't pass judgment until the time. The Corinthians were making snap judgments, jumping to conclusions before having all of the relevant information. How else were they judging? Well, they were judging omnisciently, evaluating one another omnisciently, as if they knew all that God knows, right? I know what's happening here. But they weren't just evaluating one another or their leaders prematurely or omnisciently. They were also doing it based on, again, what we've already mentioned several times, on a worldly filter for worldly applause. 
right? They were evaluating them not based on what God would applaud or commend, but based on what they would applaud or commend. And those are two entirely different standards is what we're going to come to learn in the remainder of the chapter. And so what all of this boils down to is the fact that the people in Corinth were evaluating one another and their leaders based on their own self-appointed authority. And this isn't really unfamiliar, is it? When we think of that pattern. Because I think what we see here is a basic and ongoing pattern of human evaluation, right? This is what happens. We make premature judgments made by self-appointed authority with the possession of limited knowledge with opinions that really hold no true weight. I mean, it's true, right? We all do this. We all evaluate things and all of, right, we're all constantly evaluating. We'll, we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. We're all constantly evaluating. But when we're evaluating, I want to make the case that Paul is right here when he accuses us of all too often evaluating one another, our leaders, or whatever else, prematurely, omnisciently, based on worldly standards, and ultimately in our own self-appointed authority, all of which is useless. We all do this. And if you think I'm wrong, just go to the movies in time to see the previews. What happens? Something happens in that moment when the first preview turns on. You see the, you see the MPAA warning, tells you that it's a preview, right? And, and, and the rating of the preview. And all of a sudden, you're like, you're ready. In that moment, you are transformed from Marshall Dallas, pastor, or Joe Schmo. Uh, engineer, right, into the final judge and jury of all cinematic brilliance. And so you sit there and you take in that preview and all throughout it, you're grabbing onto bits and pieces. Did like that? Didn't like that? Not going to like that. That's dumb. Not watching that? Definitely want to see that one. This doesn't just happen, obviously, in that space. This is why we love reading or writing, uh, some of us, Yelp reviews or Amazon reviews, right? How about this? What if I just say, uh, just drop this one in the middle of the room this morning? LeBron or MJ, go. Right? Everybody's got it figured out. Everybody's going to evaluate that question probably prematurely because LeBron's career is not over yet, omnisciently as if we sort of know all of the ins and outs of the game based on a certain filter through which we view that game and ultimately out of your opinion that nobody cares about. And that in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter. We're all constantly evaluating. And we're not just evaluating things, but we're evaluating people and even ourselves. 
And here's what happens. Because we're always evaluating, we live in this weird, tense, and ultimately, I would argue, brutal cycle of evaluation. Where we have an overinflated evaluation of ourselves and this gnawing suspicion that we're never living up to the evaluation of others. And so what happens? Well, to defend ourselves, we evaluate and ungraciously over-scrutinize others. And this cycle just perpetuates itself, right? As we judge others more harshly, so we judge ourselves more harshly, which means we need to make it up by judging other people even more harshly, right? Constantly evaluating, constantly trying to sort of build up within ourselves, a place where we can finally be confident that we're good enough or that we've done enough or that we've been enough. And so what we find ourselves doing always is self-inflating and others deflating. And what our text is doing this morning is it is pulling us out of that toward freedom in Christ in which we can give up this insane cycle by changing the way we evaluate. Not only ourselves, but our leaders and the ways of the world. And so how is Paul encouraging them to evaluate now, right? If, if, if he doesn't want them to evaluate prematurely or omnisciently or based on the world's standards and applause or in their own authority, how does he want them to judge? How does he want them to evaluate? I mean, it's not complicated. It's just the opposite of that, right? So he wants them to evaluate one another and themselves through patience, or patiently instead of prematurely, fallibly instead of omnisciently, or you could say that humbly instead of pridefully, right? Acknowledging that maybe there's something missing in our evaluation of a situation or a person. He wants them to evaluate others based on God's standards, God's commendation, what God will applause, not what they find immediately applause worthy or what the culture around them will applaud. And he wants them to evaluate others humbly submitted to God's authority rather than their own. And so this church that is divided because they've elevated their teachers too high, Paul is saying, listen, you want to evaluate yourself more highly because of who you're attached to. Some of you say, I'm with Paul, and so that gives me reason to be more prideful, and it gives me reason to put you down. Or I'm attached to Apollos, and so here's the reasons why I think I'm more worthy of power, wisdom, praise, acknowledgement, whatever it may be. The teacher's in the Corinthian church, were a source of prideful self-evaluation. 
and disdainful others' evaluation. Let me put it this way, since we're on the LeBron thing. right? The LeBron camp thinks that the, that the Jordan camp is old and ignorant. But the Jordan camp thinks that the LeBron camp has a short memory and lacks historical context with regard to the strength of the Eastern Conference. I'm betraying myself right now. Right? This is what we do, right? If you've ever been in this conversation before or a conversation like it in which you're taking up two sides, right? It gets heated really quick. And there's something about it that we enjoy, right? Which is why there's all these shows on like ESPN and FS1 where people just shout at each other about who's right or better and really at the end of the day, none of their opinions matter. Gosh, it's awesome TV. And you, right, you pick a side. You pick a side and you find yourself doing the same thing. Blood pressure rising. That's what's happening in the Corinthian church. It's no longer, well, you know, I think Paul has a good point. It's, I'm with Paul. And you're with Apollos and you should leave. We have no fellowship. And so at the source is this pridefulness and a misunderstanding of how one should look at the leaders in their midst. And so how should the Corinthians regard their teachers? Well, it was in the first First two verses, it says this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. How should Christians regard their teachers? Because in the Corinthian church, they're the rock stars. They're who everyone wants to be, right? They're the person whose jersey we want to wear and get signed. They're the ones in the press conference. Paul says, no, no. They're stewards. Now what's a steward? It's not a word that we use very often because it's not a position that's really held uh, in, in current days. But in Paul's time, a steward was often a slave of the household who was responsible for managing the master's things. So here's the thing, right? The people in Corinth are looking at Paul and Apollos and they're going, Master! And Paul says, oh no, 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 no. I'm not the master. I just get to take care of the master's things. This doesn't belong to me. And then he says this, he says that moreover, stewards, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And you'll notice what's missing from there, or at least I did. 
It doesn't say that it's required of them that they produce or uh, that they make much fruit or that they uh, carry with them a large public ministry or that they gain to themselves followers day by day, right? It doesn't say any of that. What does it say? It just says that they be found faithful. And so if we take the illustration from last week where, where Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm basically just a farmer. I planted a seed, Apollos watered it, but it was God that gave the growth, right? Or, or I'm basically just a construction worker. Look, Jesus laid a solid foundation in himself and I'm building upon that foundation with the appropriate materials. But all of this falls if we don't have Jesus, right? If we carry that illustration into this week. Here's the reality. There's a lot of faithful farmers out there, brothers and sisters, whose crops still might not grow as much as they could or should. Whose crops might fail. Who may have a really good season one season, but the next not so much. And Paul is saying, look, we can look at those things. But at the end of the day, what's required is that we're found faithful to the task. And leave the outcome up to the Lord. And so what is Paul doing? He's ensuring that he is neither overinflated, nor is he underinflated, right? There is a task that he is required to uphold as an apostle of Jesus Christ, that he's required to do faithfully. But he's not the master. And as long as he's faithful, whether he is fruitful or not, will be the Lord's doing, not his. So if what's at the core of the division in Corinth is a prideful evaluation of others, right? that's that's ultimately what all of this boils down to. People are attaching themselves to teachers and to names so that they can justify themselves, so so that they can be alive, so that Paul's successes can be their successes, right? If that's what's at the core, this prideful evaluation both of the teacher and of the followers of other teachers, how does Paul want them to keep from that cycle? In fact, how does he want to draw them out of it entirely? Well, this is what Paul says in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, the secret for Paul to drawing the Corinthians out of this obsessive evaluation, out of this contrarian living, out of this constant conflict, and into the peace of God is that they would remember That everyone in God's family has what they have because God gave it to them. And so here's the thing, brothers and sisters. This morning, if we have righteousness, God gave it to you. This morning, if you're walking in holiness, God gave it to you. 
This morning, if you're growing in maturity, God gave it to you. If you're in a position of leadership in this church or any church, God gave it to you. If you have knowledge of God's word and of his truth, God gave it to you. And so Paul is inviting them to renounce their own glory, to renounce their pursuit of their own glory, and instead to glory in God's good gift to them. Everything that is worthy of praise in any person, brothers and sisters, is derived, not achieved. Should you hear me say that again? Everything worthy of praise in a person is derived, not achieved. It's the point that Paul is making in verse 7. Why do you boast as though you didn't receive what you have? So listen, some of us walked in the room this morning thinking that we're God's gift to this church. Paul, based on his performance, could easily have been tempted to think the same. But let us, with Paul, confess that all that we have we've received. Any benefit that we've given to this church we first received from God. And some of us walked in the room this morning thinking that we have nothing to give to God's church. And for you, you should be encouraged. Because all that you have, God gave you. That includes your brokenness. And so listen, Paul ultimately wants to invite the Corinthians again to live in the upside-down kingdom that Christ brought to them. It's only in that upside-down kingdom living that they'll find true power, right? That's what they're searching for in this, right? In elevating Paul, in elevating Apollos, in, in judging people by their rhetoric, by their ability to communicate, right? By elevating these teachers and, and living in this way. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for power, but Paul says, listen, true power is not in jealousy, it's not in strife, it's not in being seen as knowledgeable or wise by the world's standards, it's not in being able to over or under inflate ourselves or others. In the kingdom of God, the way up is the way down. The way of weakness is the way of strength. The way of poverty is the way of riches. And so Paul invites them back to that way. And in verse 8, he gets ironic. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He essentially says that he wishes things worked the way the Corinthians thought they worked. Because if they did, they would reign. They would, they would be Everything that they think they are. And Paul says, and then we would reign with you. But Paul's ministry looks entirely different. And so we read verse 9. 
For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you, you're, you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, if, it's odd that we would belong to the same kingdom and experience such different realities. Paul says he and Apollos have become a spectacle to the world. A spectacle. This is a picture that Paul is giving us of people who are being carted into Rome's Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals. He's talking about what it means to be a gladiator, ushered to one's own death, to one's own end. That's what he's talking about when he uses that word spectacle. We've become a spectacle to the world. And Paul again reorients their thinking. Paul's power is not in his ministry. Paul's power is in that his ministry is derived. It's something he's received, right? Doesn't his description of his ministry sound familiar? What were Paul and Apollos? They were sentenced to death. Sound familiar? Give us Barabbas. They were seen as foolish and weak, right? Jesus the same. He's on the cross and the Roman soldiers, what are they saying to him? They're saying, look, you, if you have the power, come down. Come down from there. Nah, man, you're just weak. And you are foolish to believe that you are some kind of God. What else? Paul and Apollos were held in disrepute. Had a, had a bad reputation. Jesus had a bad reputation. Hungry, thirsty, homeless. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man has nothing to cover His head, right? Foxes have their holes in the ground. The Son of Man has no place to lay His head. So what's happening here? Paul's ministry is derived. Paul is living the life of Jesus. And he calls us then, this is the scary part, he calls us then to imitate him. It's living into the sufferings and the death of Jesus that means we also get to live the life of Jesus. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm just going to read a portion from there and I'll let it be. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Why? Why are those things true of Paul? Why is he afflicted but still knows that he's not crushed? Why is he 
perplexed, but not ultimately driven to despair? Why is he persecuted, but still knows that God hasn't forsaken him? Why? This is what he says in verse 10. Because we're always carrying in the body, the death of Jesus. That in us, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus comes into our life, he doesn't just bring his life to us, he brings his death with him too. That we're always carrying in us the body, in our bodies, the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He goes on, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, the suffering required of the Christian, the, the, the disrepute that Paul is going to call the Corinthian church to in the remaining chapters of this letter, that suffering that is involved, Paul says we don't lose heart because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so what does Paul say? That God is at work in us. And that as He is at work in us, there are things that we do not yet know, right? That are premature in our thinking, our understanding of others and ourselves. There are things that we will not see because they're in God's eyes visible only. And there are standards that He is judging or evaluating us that are utterly different than that of the world, and we don't have to lose heart. Because in all of that, He's preparing us for glory. And we'll conclude with these few verses from back in 1 Corinthians 4. The latter half of verse 12 says this, when, we, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And Paul says about that, imitate me. And so here's the most ironic part of Paul's very ironic speech here. When we actually obtain true kingdom power through foolishness, through weakness, through disrepute, and through hunger, we don't get to lord it over anyone. When God actually makes us more like Jesus, we don't get to lord it over anyone. This is true power, brothers and sisters. This is Jesus restraining himself on the cross, knowing that he does in fact have the power, but choosing not to wield it. And instead, although he was reviled, pouring blessing. Instead of returning insult, instead of wielding his power, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the currency, Paul says, of God's kingdom. 
The treasures of the kingdom are the trash of the world, is what Paul says. Which should offer great hope to anyone this morning that feels like they don't measure up. Certainly myself. The trash of the world is made into the treasure of the kingdom because Jesus, the ultimate treasure, became like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The gospel says that our evaluation is not ultimately based on what we think of ourselves or what others think of us, but what God thinks of us. And God ultimately evaluates sinners on the basis of what they think of Jesus. Praise God. And so this changes the way we think about ourselves and it turns our failures upside down. And so, brothers and sisters, what I'm calling us to this morning is to not be so enamored with the power of the world that we would trade our true power for traditional power. Because in so doing, we forsake God, the gospel, and our brothers and sisters. True power lies in submission to God and God alone. It doesn't rest in a supreme court. There is only one supreme court. It doesn't rest in a political party. It doesn't rest in a dollar amount. It doesn't rest in a title. It doesn't rest in someone's ability to communicate well. It doesn't rest in knowledge or any of those things. It rests in following a crucified, dead, buried, and by God's grace and in the greatest wonder of our lives, risen Savior like whom we also will rise. And that is the strength, the base from which Paul wants us to now enter into and navigate all of the difficulties of reevaluating ourselves based on God's standards and not the standards of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, grateful to be gathered together and grateful, Father, that Jesus rescues us that Jesus rescues us from our self-evaluations, that Jesus rescues us from the evaluations of others, and that through Jesus, you look at us and you evaluate us with pleasure. Lord, you look upon us and you see Him in His perfection. You see Him in His righteousness. You see Him in His holiness. You see Him in His godliness. You see Him in His restraint. You see Him in His kindness. You see Him in His mercy. You see Him in His glory. God, all of those things you see in us because we've derived it from Jesus. And God, that's good news this morning. We can be set free. We can experience peace in that good news this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would never be tempted to trade anything for that peace, for that power, to be able to walk in that kind of confidence, a confidence that is not a self-confidence. No, no. A confidence that is far more sure than that. And may we not lose heart. Because we know, God, that you're preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. That we might not see now, but Lord, when your light comes to bear on the universe, all of it will be revealed. Celebrated in, rejoiced in. 
and we will recline at your table and feast together. We're grateful, God, that we get to be there by grace and grace alone. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.